We've already teased it out a couple times. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you have your Bibles with you, pull them out. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. I'm, I'll mention this a couple times, but if you need a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. So I just ordered some really nice Bibles this week. They're sitting on that table. If you need a Bible, we'd love to give you one. If you don't normally bring your Bible, I'd encourage you to bring it, uh, and you can follow along. Uh, but as I mentioned, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at the conversion of a man named Saul. It's interesting considering uh, people who are Christians and their story of coming to faith, their story of conversion. Especially, and, and not to put people on a pedestal, but especially looking at people who go on to do incredible things for God, who go on to be great Christians, it's interesting to consider the stories of where they came from. Last week, we ended the service with a quote from a man named Charles Spurgeon. Now, a lot of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. Uh, we ended with the story of him being late uh, to the church that he was supposed to preach at, and his grandfather saying, okay, I'll, I'll go preach because Charles isn't here yet. And so his grandfather's preaching, Charles gets there, and then his grandfather sees him and says, Charles, come on up. And he says to everybody, this Charles, my grandson, he may preach the gospel better than me, but no one can preach a better gospel. That's a great quote. And then what's super impressive, just as a preacher, he just, Charles walks up and just picks up right where his grandfather had stopped, and then he just finishes the sermon. But that's Charles Spurgeon. And so it's interesting to think about a great man like this who, whose shadow is cast longer and longer, uh, the longer history plays out and the longer people read his books and hear his sermons and just seeing the impact of them. It's interesting to consider the story of how he came to faith. We see the God-ordained circumstances brought him to faith and the people that God used to play a role in that. When Charles Spurgeon was 15 years old, uh, he is written in his autobiography, he was feeling particularly miserable one morning. He was uh, feeling inner turmoil. He was troubled. And so he decided that he was going to go to church. And so he was walking to church and this crazy snowstorm hit. Crazy snowstorm where he, he couldn't keep going the way he was going. He had to divert. And so he went into uh, a little church on the way just because that's where he could go for a bit of protection from the crazy storm. And when he gets in there, uh, he goes into this church and there's only about 12 to 15 people in the room. Tiny little church. Uh, and he gets in there and he finds out that the preacher that was supposed to preach that morning was also snowed in. Uh, so he wasn't going to make it. And so... Um, an inexperienced and ill-prepared deacon was going to preach. And so, to preface it, Charles Spurgeon talks about how indebted he is to this man who, who preached that morning. But he's also pretty open and clear that this man was not the most gifted preacher. And so here's what Charles Spurgeon said. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. Now I can never tell you how it was, but I did believe in one moment. 
It was a great story, right? The God-ordained circumstances, the snowstorm that brings him into this little church, the fact that this ill-prepared deacon didn't know how to preach, so he just kept reading the text over and over. And there's more to the story. Charles Spurgeon wrote about it many times, mentioned it many times in his sermons. But it's interesting to see, again, these God-ordained circumstances and then the unlikely people that play a role in someone coming to faith that would have a huge impact. Right? He uses ordinary people as instruments in furthering the gospel. I'd imagine this lay preacher probably was feeling terrified that morning and walked away feeling like, oh man, I, I don't know if I did well. Right? He probably doesn't even know that he had a part to play in Charles Spurgeon's conversion. And so today we're going to be, again, in Acts 9, we're going to be looking at maybe the most famous conversion in history. Right? We're going to look at the God-ordained circumstances that brought that to happen, and then the faithfulness of a man named Ananias, uh, who's generally an unknown figure, but the faithfulness of him playing a role in that, uh, in Saul's conversion. I want to be clear, get a few name things out of the way. Ananias is not the same Ananias we ran into in Acts chapter 5, right? We know that Ananias died, uh, so it's a different Ananias, so this Ananias just has an unfortunate name, um, but just to make it clear, it's a different guy. Uh, and then Saul, we've talked about, goes on to be, get a new name. His name is Paul. Okay? He becomes the Apostle Paul. So, spoiler alert, the story ends that way. But I may interchange Saul, Paul, Paul, Saul, part, sometimes by accident. Sometimes if I'm talking in the future, I might call him Paul. And if I'm talking in the present, I might call him Saul. But if you've never read the Bible before, at least the names rhyme. And you can gather, if I'm talking about Saul, I'm talking about Paul. And if I'm talking about Paul, I'm talking about Saul. Okay? So, different Ananias. Paul Saul. We've got that out of the way. But we were introduced to Saul a couple times. If you flip a page or two back in your Bibles, in Acts chapter 7, verses 58, was the first time we hear of this Saul character. And it's in the horrible story of when Stephen, a follower of Jesus, is murdered for proclaiming the gospel. And it says, then they, those who were about to kill him, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so our introduction to this man Saul is, uh, he's, he's part of this terrible scene uh, where the first Christian martyr dies. And then the next time we hear about him is a few verses later in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. All right, so now we know Saul's a loser. Like Saul is he played a role in it, he participated, and he approved of his execution. Right? He hated Christians, he hated Jesus, he hated the gospel. So much that in verses 3, skipping down a little bit, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Like, this guy's militant. He is out to get Christians. He is out to shut down the gospel. And what's interesting, which we've talked about, we're, we're talking about the conversion of this man. And so what we're going to learn is that no one is beyond God's sovereign grace. Right? This is a trend we've seen already through Acts, that we see through the whole Bible, and that we see through all of history. Right? No one is beyond God's sovereign grace. Marketing gurus have talked for a long time, I'm sure you've witnessed this, that there's a lot of power in a before and after picture. 
right? a before and after picture. Now, most of us know that a lot of those are total hoaxes. Right? Like, why, why are they never smiling in the before picture? Like, why is the lighting so bad? And then everything's all cleaned up and wonderful in the after picture. But today, we're going to see a real before and after picture. Right? A man that goes from zero to hero, from terrorist to evangelist. Right? You couldn't think of a more polarizing thing. It's undeniable the change in this man's life. And so our big idea this morning, our big idea is this. If God can save Saul, he can save anyone. If God can save Saul, he can save anyone. Now, if you're a Christian, don't check out and think, oh, good, okay, I don't have to pay attention to this one. I've already been saved. I don't have to worry. Don't check out here. There's so much that we can learn, uh, both through the conversion of Saul, through the work of this Ananias character, uh, and even just to know the truth that uh, to springboard off of what we talked about last week in evangelism, that, hey buddy, um, that God can save absolutely anybody, and what a hope that we have in that. So we'll see through this passage, there's two main sections, two main blocks, and that translates to our two points for this morning's sermon. Verses 1 through 9, we are going to talk about God's gift of grace in conversion. And then God's gift of using us for his mission. Those are our two kind of areas so you can kind of track with us as we go. So we've talked a little bit about Luke's description of Saul so far. He describes him as not only malicious, but almost animalistic. He's ravaging the church. That's a word uh, in the Greek that's only used this one time in the New Testament. Uh, and we find once in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Psalm 80, where uh, he talks about boars ravaging and destroying a vineyard, wild boars destroying a vineyard. John Calvin describes Saul as a wild and ferocious beast. And so as we read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, uh, we'll see some, some more description that Luke gives us here. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now many authors have drawn parallels between this, this breathing out threats and murder uh, to the language used of a panting and snorting animal. Saul, in his own words, in Acts 26, he talks, uh, he says that he, in a raging fury, a raging fury, persecuted Christians. And so Saul was hardly fertile ground, right? You wouldn't think, oh, that's the guy. He's going to be the next, not only Christian, but the next guy who goes on to, to cast this massive shadow. He not only wasn't pursuing Jesus with all of his heart like he should, he was pursuing Jesus' followers uh, with a raging fury. And so while in the act of persecuting Christians, he runs into this brick wall of God's amazing grace. And so that'll be our, our first point, God's gift of grace in conversion. Uh, continuing in uh, verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And so this trip to Damascus was a Close to a week-long journey. Close to a week-long journey. 217 kilometers. 
217 kilometers. That's a big trip, right? If we left Woodland, this location today, and we walked to the CN Tower and back, right? This is actually still a little bit longer than that. I was trying to think of landmarks that I could use, and so I spent a crazy amount of time on Google Maps trying to get the distances down, but it's pretty close. If you left this location, walked to the CN Tower and back, that's the trip to Damascus. Right? Saul was on a mission, where he was on a crusade. He knew what he wanted to do, and so he was willing to walk 217 kilometers to do it. Right? The gospel had obviously spread to Damascus, and Saul was headed there to attempt to squash it. So continuing in verse 3. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul is stopped dead in his tracks. He's stopped dead in his tracks by a light that again in Acts 26, he talks about a light being brighter than the sun. Jesus calls him out. He calls him out by name. Right? And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting that Jesus identifies so much with his followers, identifies so much with his church that he a persecution or an attack against Christians, against the church, is an attack against him. Why are you persecuting me? Right? He's not like, uh, he's not just the guy on the playground that's standing up to the bully saying, hey, don't pick on my friend. Right? An attack against Jesus' people, against Christians, is an attack against him. Right? He so identifies with his bride, the church, that this attack is personal. And Saul is on a mission to attack the Christian church and is confronted with Jesus Christ himself, the one that he is trying to shut down. Now, we most likely haven't or won't have this Damascus Road experience, such a dramatic revelation, such a dramatic confrontation with Jesus. But we can learn a lot, whether you have a story that is dramatic or less dramatic, we can learn a lot about conversion just from these few short verses. We can learn a lot about God's gift of grace. And so the first is God's gift of grace is gracious. God's gift of grace is gracious. He's, he's so merciful. He could have struck down Saul dead. Right? He could have prevented him from getting there. God is all-powerful. He could have, he could have, Saul was trying to squash the gospel. God could have squashed Saul. But no, he's mind-bogglingly merciful. Instead, he confronts Saul with his sin, right? Drops him to the ground. Saul is actively rebelling against God. So there is a confrontation, but he extends immeasurable grace to Saul. Right? Saul, this Saul, again, becomes the Apostle Paul, who goes on to write, if you read the letters of the New Testament, what he's written, he just... It's so interesting to read when he talks about this amazing grace. That, that this was him. Same guy. Right? I think we forget that. I don't know. I forget that a lot. Right? And so he has experienced grace upon grace. Gracious, merciful grace. And so all conversion involves mercy. All conversions are also an encounter with Jesus. 
My story is nothing like Saul's. Uh, That isn't to say I'm on some high horse and he was some scumbag. Uh, We're both sinners in need of a savior. But my story is far less dramatic, right? I had no radical Damascus Road experience. I was raised in a Christian home. Both my parents became Christians before I was born, and they shared the gospel with me. And it wasn't this profound knock-to-my-knees experience. But that's not to downplay it. The same amazing grace and encounter with Jesus that Saul had is the same one that Charles Spurgeon had, is the same one that I had, is the same one that if you're a Christian, you've had. So all conversions are an encounter with Jesus. Conversion is not simply deciding one day that you're going to be a Christian. Conversion is not raising a hand at a conference, walking an aisle, signing on a dotted line somewhere. It's not a Costco membership. Right? It's not even baptism. Right? We looked at Simon the Magician a couple weeks before. Right? He was baptized. Everything looked peachy. But the evidence in his life was not that he had a real encounter with Jesus. And so conversion is an encounter with Jesus and surrender to him. Jesus' death, paying the penalty for our sins, trading his righteousness for all of our wrongs, and his resurrection is what made a way for us to be right with God. Right? There's no conversion without the gospel. There's no conversion without the good news. And so maybe you have a dramatic story, maybe you don't. Right? I know there's people in this room, and I know your story, I know that there's some dramatic things that have gone into your uh, coming to faith. But others, maybe not so much. But maybe you're here and you've never heard this good news before. Maybe you've heard it dozens of times, but you've never really considered it. Or when I talk about this encounter with Jesus, you're thinking, I I don't know what this is all about. Now, only God knows your story. Only God knows why you're here, even this morning. But maybe you're here today to hear the gospel. Maybe you're here today. This is your Damascus Road experience. And so like that lay preacher says to Charles Spurgeon, look, look to Jesus. That's what we're saying here. In the songs we sing, in the prayers we pray, in the sermons we preach, we're saying look to Jesus. So continuing on in verse 6. This is Jesus saying, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So maybe one of the most famous songs of all time, uh, maybe after Happy Birthday, is Amazing Grace. The song Amazing Grace. And the first verse captures this so well. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Right? Great song. But so... uh, relevant uh, even to today's passage. Now, Saul was physically blinded. He was blind. He was humbled. Uh, He could no longer enter Damascus with, I'd imagine he had a lot of swagger. He was on a mission. He was on this crusade. He now had to be led in by the hand. He was brought to his knees, couldn't see, 
He was humbled. Now, likely most of us won't have this was blind, but now I see literal, uh, real experience. But spiritual blindness is certainly a real thing. Right? When Josiah preached on being a gospel-driven church a couple weeks back, uh, he talked about uh, a verse in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? So the gospel, you're blind to the gospel until you're not. Right? And so Saul was physically blinded, humbled in this place. Uh, but consider the spiritual blindness that exists Uh, maybe existed in your own life before you became a Christian, or if you're not, maybe the the blindness that you're feeling right now. Right? And that isn't only relevant for uh, conversion. Uh, Think about all of us, uh, those that are Christians, in an ongoing way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So an ongoing part of being a Christian is looking to Jesus, right? Kicking off those blinders, uh, looking and living, beholding Christ. It's transforming. And so God does this, though. He sometimes brings us to our knees, uh, whether you are becoming a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for a long time. Uh, He humbles us to expose our sin and our blindness. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility is the place to be, and God drastically demonstrates this with Saul. So God's gift of grace is clear in conversion. Uh, But also God gives the gift of using us as instruments in his mission. That's our second point. God's gift of using us as instruments in his mission. Continuing on, starting in verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. It's still a street in Damascus. It's the main east-west way, a very old street. Uh, People say it's the oldest occupied road, but it's got the boringest name ever. Uh, Anyway, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias uh, announces it here that Saul's reputation uh, was a bad reputation, but it had spread. It had spread 217 kilometers to Damascus. Right? So Ananias, he has his doubts. He has genuine concern for the church. You want me to go talk to that guy? I I can relate to this feeling that Ananias would have if if you imagine this conversation going on. Last week we talked about Philip and the Ethiopian official. Uh, We saw this beautiful picture of evangelism and conversion again. And we talked a lot about what evangelism means. And we also talked a lot about 
Uh, if you're a Christian and you're sitting here, who are the people that pop into your head when you're thinking of, who do I need to share the gospel with? Who needs to know the gospel? Right? We, we went over that a couple times. And so I hope there's people that popped into your head. But what were your next thoughts after that? What were your next thoughts? Were they, ooh, that seems really hard. Uh, that seems embarrassing. Right? I might be mocked. What would I say? Right? You may feel like you have a really good reason not to share the gospel, but I doubt any of us have as good a reason as Ananias. Right? This isn't persecution light. Remember Stephen? Right? They killed him by throwing stones at him. And Saul was a part of that. Right? Saul just walked 217 kilometers to track down Ananias and his brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? He was going to arrest them and walk them back to Jerusalem 217 kilometers. This guy, he was on a mission. And so Ananias has concerns. But when God tells you to do something, you need to trust him. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What a statement. God lays it all out here. Right? He says, this Saul guy, he's going to go share the gospel with Jews. He's going to share the gospel with Gentiles, right? non-Jews. He's going to share the gospel even with kings. Right? God says, I've got big plans for this guy. Now, this is an insane before and after image, right? When we're thinking about that before and after image illustration, imagine that. Right? It's mind-boggling. Imagine an ISIS terrorist leader coming to faith, not just coming to faith, but being a key instrument in the gospel spreading. I don't, when I think of that, a lot of doubt fills my mind. But that's exactly what we're seeing happen right here to Saul. And so you may be sitting here and you may be feeling like the most unlikely candidate. You may think, I am beyond saving. Right? Or I don't even have an interest. Right? But look at Saul. Right? You may be sitting here as a Christian thinking, I, I don't know what role I could play in this. Look at Ananias, right? faithfully following God's command. So reading 17 through 19 to the end. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. One thing to just draw out of this, I think, is just a beautiful example of Christian kindness by Ananias. His first word that comes out of his mouth when he runs into this Saul guy who is on a mission to arrest and kill him was brother. Right, we've seen Ananias' concerns, his doubts, his fears, yet he calls him brother. I love the language 
of the fact that we're a family. We are a family adopted by a father. And so if you're a Christian here, we are brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know why. For a long time, the language of brother-sister was not really a part of my vocabulary, talking to and about Christians. But it's such a rich uh, expression. I love that language, acknowledging our oneness in Christ. We talk about how the gospel is the motivating and unifying factor in all that we say and do. And so beyond any walls that we put up, the gospel unifies us. And if we're Christians, we're brothers and sisters, right? And so Amy and I, could, we have very different life experiences. We're from very different cultures. But Mamie's my sister, right? Even sworn enemies, like firefighters and police officers, like Pete, right? No, just kidding. But really, though, he is my brother because he believes the gospel. He is a Christian, so he is my brother in Christ. We are united by the gospel. And so Saul regains his sight, and more than his eyes being opened physically, his eyes are opened spiritually. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and like the Ethiopian eunuch, he's baptized. Right, this is visibly demonstrating his death to his old self, his dying to his old self and being raised again in Christ. We've talked about in our services the different elements that we do when we gather to worship. And so some of this might be review, some of this might be the first time you heard it, but some of the things we think about is we want to read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible. So we read the Bible, we actually read it. Uh, we preach the Bible, as you see. We pray the Bible, we sing the Bible. And when we say we see the Bible, this is what we're talking about. We, the ordinances of Lord's Supper and baptism. So we see the gospel in tangible form when someone dies to their old self, goes under the water, and is raised again in Christ. And we continue that on in our sharing of the Lord's Supper together, proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. And so Saul is welcomed into the family. Right? He's no longer an enemy, but a brother. No longer a wolf, but he's a sheep in the fold. And so again, thinking of this before and after image, this is as radical as it gets. Right? This is insane that a, an enemy of the gospel could become an advocate of the gospel. And next week we're going to go into it and we're going to explore his response, Saul's response. But as a teaser, look at the... Next verse, right after verse 19, verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Right? There is a heart change, but there's a life change. And so I don't know exactly uh, why each and every one of you are here this morning. I doubt that you walked 217 kilometers to come here to arrest us. But maybe you uh, look at this Saul guy and maybe there's some things that resonate. Maybe you're angry at God. Maybe you're angry at the church. Right? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, man, I'm nowhere near where this Saul guy's at, but I, I don't even know what I'm rejecting. Where do I begin? How do I find out more? Right? Maybe I'm lonely. I'm frustrated. Maybe 2020 has made you more aware than ever of the mess of the world that we're in. And so I'd say to you, start with the Bible. That's our primary source. Start with the Bible. 
I'd say if, uh, again, I mentioned if you need a Bible, I would love to give you one. And I'd say start with the Gospels, right? Four books written by, in the first century, by those who were uh, either friends of Jesus or in his circle close to, close to Jesus, right? Eyewitness accounts. And look at what did Jesus have to say? What did Jesus do? If you know those stories, maybe you, you grew up in the church and you're thinking, man, I haven't had this encounter with Jesus. I don't really know. I know the stories, but I don't know what this means. Maybe start with uh, some of the letters, right? The epistles, we call them. The, the books that come after that. Many of which were written by this Saul guy, right? right and help ex- explain uh, what Jesus had to say and also uh, what that means to us today. And so like I said, I'd love to give you a Bible. God can and does change hearts. And so I'd remind you again, if God can save Saul, he can save anyone, even you. And Christian, if you're sitting there uh, and thinking, okay, well, what does this mean for me? There's a number of things we could draw out of this, but maybe you're thinking, I haven't experienced this joining a church, becoming part of the family, being really welcomed in as a brother or a sister. So maybe considering membership, being, being really, truly joining, committing a church, committing yourself to holding up uh, one another and, and being held accountable. So maybe you need to consider membership. Maybe you're a Christian, but you've never responded like Saul responded, right, in this outward declaration of baptism. The Bible calls for obedience, and so Christian... Be encouraged, too, that no one is beyond God's reach. And we can respond by praising God for the saving work that he's done in your life and the lives of those that you share the gospel with. So I'd encourage you, be faithful like Ananias. Are those people still rattling around in your head that you know you need to share the gospel with? God is up to something far more than we could ever ask for or imagine. We worship a good God who gives us the amazing gift of grace in conversion and the privilege of using us for his mission. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the stories that we read about, these dramatic before and after pictures of conversion. Father, we know that you can transform hearts. Only you can transform hearts. We love these examples uh, that we see, and particularly this example this morning of Saul, who is an absolute enemy of you, who hated you. Yet you confronted him in his sin. You drew him in, gave him the amazing gift of grace in his conversion. And so we thank you for these stories, the encouragement that they can be for us as Christians. Father, I pray for anyone who who hasn't had this encounter with Jesus, that they would, in the same way Spurgeon was prompted, look, just look to you, that they would get a Bible and read it, that someone would come alongside them. Father, pray that if it would be your will, that you would save their soul like you've done for Saul. Father, for uh, those of us that know there's people that we need to share the gospel with, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the words to say, Uh, and the faithfulness like we see in Ananias to to go and and do your work. Father, we thank you for 
the fact that you can ordain circumstances to bring people uh, to faith in you and that you use us, humble sinners, uh, as instruments in your mission. We pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.